welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, March 1st, 2020, or should I say sometime in the 60s, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castomreviews.com and also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, Michael, you just moved. I did. And, yeah. uh, and, and while... Certainly uh, not an enormous undertaking as it would to move Peter Felicia and his cabinets. (laughs) You do have a considerable number of playbills. You haven't seen seen my – that's what's in my cabinets. No, no, no. I've seen your cabinets. I've been at your place and went to get a cup of water, and I was like, uh, Ah. can't get a cup of water. I have the Hal Prince showboat here. That's right. That's absolutely true. So, Michael – while you were reorganizing your playbills after your move, you made an astute observation. What was that? Well, I yeah, I had done a purge. I may have mentioned uh, a couple of years ago a huge purge. So I, I don't even have as many uh, playbills as I would have had, which already would have been a you know considerably fewer than Peter. But anyway, um, <laughs> I still have quite a few, and so now I did, didn't done another purge before realphabetizing on my shelves. And as I was going through, I noticed uh, that some of the playbills were extremely thick, um, much thicker than what we have now. And I, at random, I picked up a playbill for "Is There Life After High School." which was a short-lived 1982 musical, which I really loved, actually, mm-hmm. uh, with music mm-hmm. and lyrics by Craig Carnelia, mm-hmm. book by Jeffrey Kinley. Uh, I think, yeah, I think Peter and I have discussed it before. Um, anyway, uh, this, uh, it was so thick, and, I, and so I went to the, the back, number, the last numbered page, and it is 98 pages which obviously most of it being ads mm-hmm. and it's fun of course just to look through the ads and see what they are for and how ads were done in those days as compared to now but uh so then i compared it to just at random a, a brand new playbill for a broadway show west side story which is 40 pages um so i just thought that that's uh i mean uh, obviously less than half and i i hasten to note this is not something that's uh an issue that only playbill is facing it's every uh print publication of every type that i know of um didn't what what magazine did we just major magazine did we just hear it going on it was it vanity fair or vogue yeah, one of them is going on only digital now. Only digital, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I again, it I, I don't mean to imply that it's just Playbill, but it's sometimes it's. Um, I mean, we're great. We should be grateful that any of these things still exist. I agree, and it must be very difficult for the um, ad sales people to keep it going. Um, oh, it must be entirely. Yeah, yeah. I was talking with. Uh, Someone at Playbill who I, I can't mention their name uh, okay. because I didn't I didn't I don't know if this was private or not. Right. Um, 
Do you know what Playbill's number one revenue source is now, according to them? What? Cruise ships. Oh, yeah? Oh. Ah, ah. Cruise ships are their number one revenue source, so not the Playbills anymore and not their not their website and all the other ancillary properties that Playbill has, Playbill Vault, Playbill uh, Playbuilder, all the other different things that Playbill does. But, you know, those cruise ships are enormously popular. Well, hopefully mm-hmm. that and, won't and, be knocked out by the coronavirus. Oh, oh yeah. That's Good very point. interesting. And, Good point. Uh, and Seth Rudesky yeah. has made his own career, uh, you know, bu- built, you know, Seth Rudesky, another one who has... Um, written musicals and hosted and done all sorts of things. I think at one point, uh, he definitely was, he used to host the Playbill cruises, but I think he has his own cruises now. Oh, yeah. He hosts. Uh, Uh and he does, of course, the town hall stuff and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, cruising with, uh, cruising in Broadway, big Venn Venn diagram overlap. Uh, you know, we should, uh, do a Broadway radio cruise, but just not go out on a boat. We could do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I've Sooner never been. Better. I've never been on a Playbill cruise, but I, as I've mentioned, I went on three uh, or more of the Rosie O'Donnell. Oh, that's Our right. family yeah. cruises when uh, you know in the beginning when they were really mm-hmm. just they had incredible people as guests, uh, and that was just paradise. It really was. It's a great situation to be in if you know if with like-minded people and just going to see one fabulous show after another and you know and then plus all the amenities of the ship itself it's it, uh, i thought it was amazing so it's been a big week of uh, non-broadway news and as we mentioned uh, just briefly the coronavirus is uh, playing into a lot of things. Do you foresee, do you think that the coronavirus is going to have any impact on Broadway since it's it's impacting tourism so much around the world right now? Well, um, so far as I understand, there's only been one, um, I hate to say only, but um, a death, let's say, in yeah. Washington State, mm-hmm. and that's pretty far away. But, yeah. um, you know, anything can happen at any moment. There's um, there's just <laughs> one thing to be sure of, Mate. There's nothing to be sure of, as Stephen Schwartz once wrote, and it's really mm. true. Okay, so let's uh, move forward into our agenda. Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Yeah, this was a really tough question. Um, what I'm writer? So glad because I, I never <laughs> get them. So when I hear it's a really tough one, I feel not so bad. <laughs> yeah, this was this was almost a cheat. Um, what writer? Notice I say writer, who's a member of the Theater Hall of Fame, worked on two musicals set in Greece. One took place in the 20th century, and one was set in a much much earlier era. Well, um, Tony Janicki um, guessed that Stephen Sondheim wrote some lyrics for Ilya Darling, which took place in 20th century Greece. Then he wrote the complete score for The Frogs, set in ancient Greece. Yeah, you know, if you look at the credits for The Frogs, it has it's very fanciful because it actually says the time is the present. <laughs> the setting is ancient <laughs> Greece. You know, <laughs> so I mean, but really, uh, Michael, you, you you found your playbills. Go to the F's, and you will find that in your playbill. So he did have a he did have a much better answer though when he said um, George Abbott co-wrote the book and directed the boys from Syracuse, 
which is set in ancient Greece. And he replaced Agnes DeMille as the director of Out of This World, which takes place in 1950 uh, near Athens. So he, he's right. I'll tell you what I was going for, though. And as I say, this is really hard. Fred Ebb not only wrote the l- lyrics for Zorba, that's the one set in the 20th century, but he also provided additional material for the 1967 revival of By Jupiter which was set in ancient Greece. I mean, I took on my By Jupiter album recently to uh, do some sort of uh, research, and I was amazed to see his name there. But there it is. So that's the answer to the question that I was looking for, though Tony definitely gets credit for the boys from Syracuse um, um, and um, Out of This World. I didn't know that Sondheim wrote any lyrics for Ilya, darling. They're even in the book, in the Finishing the Hat. Book. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, look, I made a hat. I don't know which one to send, but uh, oh, yeah, they're there. I, I, I'll tell you, <laughs> I didn't know that either until I got the book. And I'm turning the pages, you know, I'm seeing all these familiar shows, you know, West Side Story, and so on, Gypsy, you know, funny thing. Anyway, what was that? So, but Ilya, darling, what the hell is this? You know, uh, so. Uh, so that was a revelation that, that came with that book, basically? Yeah, I had never known that before. Mm. Um, so, uh, maybe other, many other people did, but I did not. So anyway. Okay. So, uh, and Tony Janik, who is adamant that whether or not that was the answer you were thinking of, that was the answer. Yeah. And he's (laughs) right. I mean, he certainly gets credit for it. Nobody else, few, a few other people took stabs at it. Um, uh, so Cheryl Hodges, uh, Selden mentioned the frogs. Um, and a lot of people guessed, um, a funny thing happened in the way of the forum, which actually takes place in ancient Rome. Rome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it uh, didn't quite work out there, but anyway, um, a lot of people tried, um, but at least Tony came up with an answer that really was uh, correct. All right. So uh, let's move in to our first review of the morning. Michael and Peter both got a mm-hmm. chance to get to the Broadway theater to see West side stories. So, Oh, Michael, Michael, yeah. <laughs> Michael, I've been waiting for this for months and months and months. <laughs> Let me hear what you thought about West Side Story. Well, my feelings were overwhelmingly negative, despite some some positive feelings. But I, I think I should preface what I'm going to say by reading someone else's comment that I read online somewhere. And this, I think this is very astute. This person wrote, people harping on about this West Side Story need to give it a rest. Of all the musical theater works of the past century, with the exception of Sweeney Todd, perhaps. Interesting. Um, West Side Story's place in the canon is assured. Not only will it continue to be performed in the way it was originally envisioned by its creatives, but dance companies will continue to perform the Robbins choreography, and Bernstein's score has already entered the opera canon. Right now, I doubt anybody would have much interest in seeing another solid but traditional Broadway production. West Side Story is a masterpiece, no doubt, but it is also resilient enough to withstand an attempt at reimagining the work, whether that be successful or not. And I think that there is a lot of truth to that, especially for this particular show, which is, as this person wrote, just an an all-time incredible, beloved, immortal classic. Uh, I, I think if we had to pick one show of all the musicals ever written, that is, you know, either the, the greatest masterpiece and or beloved by the most people it's, 
highly likely it would be that one. Uh, and certainly, if not at the top spot, it would be way up there. Uh, so I think this is a very good point for those of us to keep in mind uh, who really abhorred this production or a great deal of it. Um, I also had a thought, a crazy thought that um, not to simp- oversimplify the matter, but I almost think that um, a great deal of the issue would be eliminated with these radical revisals of shows if they just changed the title slightly. Uh, for example, calling this one another West Side Story or something hmm. like that. And I don't know what they would call the unsinkable Molly Brown, but I'll, I'll leave that to someone else to, to think up. But um, I think, uh, not again, not to be simplistic, but I think that that would make me feel better. Um, but of course, the problem then is where do you draw the line? Uh, all, almost all revisals, revivals are changed to some degree, if it's, whether it's a song cut or uh, relatively minor changes uh, as compared to the tremendous, huge changes uh, that we're seeing in this production and, and, and some other productions. So um, I, I guess in theory, uh, my idea would work, but, but I'm not sure where you would draw the line. And I guess we just have to, in a case like this, we have to, um, well, first of all, read up. Uh, on on the production before we go and watch uh, the t- television features on it, as, as this one had a, a huge one on, was it 60 Minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and uh, just, you know, I, I, to prepare ourselves and be knowledgeable as to what they are putting on, out there as to what the changes are that they're making and what cuts that they're making, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I uh, don't, I think this was largely an abomination. Um, the The main problem, uh, as so many people have said, is that uh, a tremendous amount of the show is on video, uh, projected uh, uh, the size of the stage against the back wall of the huge Broadway theater. Uh, a great deal of it is live video uh, of the performance you're actually seeing uh, being caught by cameras, which, and and then uh, transmitted to this, to the back wall and this, this huge, which basically becomes a tremendous movie screen. Uh, Other scenes are um, uh, previously filmed or taped or recorded or whatever word you want to use for it. Um, And, but either way, uh, this, first of all, the size of the images are so huge that they naturally uh, completely detract your attention from what's happening on stage. Uh, and I just cannot understand the reason for that. I, I, I do remember um, I saw, I've seen many productions of West Side Story and one of them that I saw, I can't remember which one it was. might've been the one I saw at LaGuardia high school. Uh, they used video in, at one point, uh, and that point was when uh, Tony and Maria first meet after the dance, where he, the famous fire escape scene. And so they have the dialogue, and then he climbs up, and they start to sing that incredibly beautiful duet tonight. And at that point, um, there was a, a video screen on the set, which maybe you didn't previously notice, and that filled 
with uh, a, a huge close up of the two of them. Uh, but that was the only time it was used throughout the show. And I thought that was incredibly effective. Um, this is something different, entirely different. It's, it's uh, a friend of mine went, saw the show the other night and said, um, that the woman uh, next to him didn't really say anything through the whole show, but then a young woman. Uh, but then at the end, when they were all leaving, she's like, well, why didn't we just watch this on TV? Hmm. Uh, yeah. So people are having, you know, uh, very different reactions to it. Some people actually seem to like it. Uh, I think it, it hmm. might've been extremely effective if it was done in far smaller doses. Uh, but we'll never know because this one is practically... I mean, tremendous amounts of it are are projected or whatever the word is in that way. And and, and I want to, I mean, this is really, this is so perverse that it's, it's amazing what you can get used to or, you know, something that can be done where you think, why isn't there an outcry about this? The, the actual scenes, uh, a lot of the actual scenes that are being, projected onto the back wall are taking place on small stages placed at the entirely rear wall of the stage, which is basically a block away from, you know, even someone who's sitting in center orchestra, let alone someone who's sitting in the mezzanine or the, or the, the very rear of the very large Broadway theater. And so these people are back there and you can sort of see them, uh, you know, a little bit, um, depending on, on how good your vision is. Uh, but why, why are they doing that in live theater? Uh, it's, I, I just don't get it. It's just absolutely perverse. And I think it's ridiculous. Um, I made lots of random notes uh, after the show, which, by the way, is a, an hour and 45 minutes uh, with no intermission. Uh, many people would say that alone is a terrifically uh, bad decision because it involves several major cuts, including the song I Feel Pretty and the Somewhere Ballet. Um, and on that note, before I go any further, I Feel Pretty, whatever you think, it may, Sondheim may not like the <laughs> lyrics that he wrote. Uh, other people may agree with him. It, it may not be the best song in the show, but is absolutely vital to the show as a whole because this show is very dark and it has precious few moments of joy and humor and lightness in it. And all of those moments need to be retained. Likewise, the somewhere ballet in which the uh, Tony and Maria envision a world where they are not separated by tribalism, by the fact that uh, they're different their skin is not the same, exactly the same color. They're from two different cultures. They're from two different worlds. And they envision uh, how they and the rest of the teenagers would be able to love each other uh, in a world that didn't have that kind of hatred. Uh, if that's not there, uh, you, you just remove a tremendous amount of heart from the show. It is true that the ballet was cut from the movie. Uh, I think they intended to include it, what I, is what I have read, but then it was partly a budget issue. And then also, I think they were afraid that they, they could not uh, quite figure out a way to uh, 
to depict it on screen uh, that would seem um, that would not uh, seem too precious and too stylized. Uh, but uh, whatever, whatever. That's the movie. This is a show. There's no reason to take it out, and it should be there. And I can't believe they took it out. Um, let's see. Just some random notes that I made. Uh, this is a. a f- the, Famously, one of the most famous dance shows of all time, based on Jerome Robbins' original uh, choreography and uh, the uh, huge contribution to Peter Gennaro, who also choreographed much of the show, including uh, all of the non-Jets material, such as the, I believe, all of the dance at the gym and the song America originally. Uh, we'll keep want to keep repeating that so because he's finally gotten credit after all these years and he deserves it. But uh, so now we have choreography by Anne-Theresa de Kirschmecker, and a lot of it seems based on uh, s- intended to look like the actual movements that modern day street gangs might do and i think it's uh kind of interesting for a few minutes and then it becomes extremely Mm -hmm. boring because there are no levels to it and there's no um i would say there's no narrative content to the choreography so tremendous mistake there uh but anyway this show originally it it starts off with the prologue where we see the um jets defending their turf from the sharks uh one of the most famous dance numbers in, in history here. Um, I would say what happens is the show starts in silence. The, uh, the jets, I guess the jets walk out first and stand there uh, and don't move. And there is no movement for the first two or three minutes of the prologue, uh, except for a, maybe a slight swaying back and forth of these gang members while the camera you know, because we're here to, you know, watch TV, uh, is swooping over them and, and magnifying their faces with, uh, with uh, very prominent tattoos, by the way, uh, on the back wall of the theater. Um, it, and this seems like they, it seems like they stand there forever. Uh, my, my, uh, my theater companion said afterwards, he said, I counted 142 measures. Um, I don't think it was quite that long, but it was a really, really long time. So I guess, uh, I don't know, I guess it's easier for her to stage that. Um, and she didn't want to put any effort into that part of it. Um, the direction, the whole concept uh, of the, this being darker and, and grittier than it ever was uh, is, is taken to a ridiculous extreme. I noticed um, that there was too much anger in, uh, bo- in two of the early scenes. The this first scene between Tony and Riff, where uh, Riff is trying to talk Tony into coming to the dance at the gym uh, so they can uh, discuss having the rumble with the sharks. Uh, and then the, the following scene between Maria and Anita at the dress shop where uh, Anita is working on the dress that Maria is going to be wearing to the dance that night. Uh, in this, uh, one of the lines um, uh, that Riff has to Tony is something to the effect of, uh, uh, um, you know, how disappointed he is in him that he doesn't want to come to the dance because Tony's trying to remove himself from the Jets. And uh, Tony says, uh, the line is something like, end your suffering, little man. Why don't you pack up your gear and move out? Because um, 
we are told that Riff has been living with Tony and his family. And it's not actually spelled out, but uh, we're supposed to think that Riff was on the streets and Tony took him in. So they are very, very close. Well, in this production, Tony says, uh, and your suffering little man, why don't you just pack up your gear and move out? He says it with such anger that it sounds like he really wants him to do that. But it's not supposed to be that at all. He's supposed to be joking with him. So that is an example of the director not knowing what is going on with the show. And then uh, with Maria and Anita, uh, when uh, Anita refuses to um, alter the dress in the way Maria wants, she seemed very, very, very angry with her. And... uh, was shouting at her about that. So the first scenes we see of Maria are of her being very unpleasant. And I guess this was to make her a strong young Latina woman, but it just actually works tremendously against the character who's supposed to be very charming and lovable. So that was a huge mistake. Uh, at the same time that I said all of those two things, uh, we, because of the video, we see these actors get really in each other's faces. And I mean that almost literally. Um, there is a, a moment with Tony and Riff where their mouths are about a, an inch away from each other. And it really looked like somebody was going to stick his tongue down the other one's throat. So it's I sort of like the Curly Judd uh, in yes, Oklahoma. Actually, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. people, you know, these People in making these shows their own, they feel they have to find something that's not there. So uh, that's what I think they're doing, and I think it's got to stop. But or, or it's not going to stop. But that doesn't mean we have to like it. And and you know, it's just up to us to call it out whenever it happens. Just really, really insane. Um, Maria was, uh, I felt, too quote unquote strong throughout the show in a very unpleasant way. I, I, I find the original Maria as written to be an extremely strong character. She is the one who uh, gets Tony to try to stop the rumble. She's the one who realizes how ridiculous everything is. She's very smart. And uh, there did not need to be any changes to that character to make her into something else, uh, which is far less pleasant and nobody wants to be with. So um, I really didn't like that at all. Uh, Isaac Powell is Tony. Uh, every time he, sing, he sings very well, he keeps doing these rap hand gestures, which don't fit with the music. And, uh, you know, they, they might be kind of interesting again for 30 seconds but then he keeps doing the same gestures and they become boring um lines have been cut in addition to the uh the the major musical sections that i mentioned uh the meeting scene uh, at the dance between tony and maria used to have a a beautiful line uh well one one line is retained here at the end of it uh tony says to maria you're not making a joke or you're not joking. Originally, she then said, I have not yet learned to joke that way. Now I think I never will. But they took that line out. Um, there were several places during the show where I, I laughed inappropriately and not, you know, not just to be an asshole, but it really was involuntary. Um, at the end of the uh, Tonight duet, the gangs, both of the gangs appear and, and try to pull Tony and Maria apart 
from each other, you know, because they needed to sledgehammer that in. So they did that. And I laughed there. Uh, during I Have a Love, A Boy Like That, there is, uh, while these two people are attempting to sing a, a wonderful, dramatic, beautiful duet, somewhere downstage, we have on the upstage wall, Tony running uh, in, in the streets, all bloodied. And not only is he running, but he's running in slow motion. So that made me laugh. And uh, just um, lots and lots of changes throughout that I thought were almost all to the detriment of the show. It was extremely upsetting to me. And I know it's uh, engendered uh, very divisive, very diverse feelings among many, many people. And so uh, I'm sure that perhaps Peter will have a different take on much of what I've just said. Oh, okay. um, I did notice. I'm sorry. Um, uh, just one specific thing I wanted to mention because I don't I don't see anyone else notice it. There are some new lyrics in America. Um, mm. Uh, the original line is everything free in America for a small fee in America. And that's now uh, you can be free in America. See for a fee in America. I remember Sondheim, uh, one lyric of his that he used mm-hmm. to complain about was for a small fee in America because he thought it sounded like for a small fee because uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to enunciate. So I think maybe he t- took this opportunity to rewrite that lyric and that, particular rewrite i happen to like so um let me end on that tiny little positive note okay peter what'd you think oh why not a new interpretation the 1980 revival the 2009 revival were perfectly fine and everybody went out um having enjoyed them and forgot about them immediately i mean really uh it, it was business did anybody really have their pulses racing from those other two revivals i mean they were fine they were they were fine yes uh, but the business as usual approach, I mean, so let, let's try something different. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting to me about the video, um, <laughs> I'm not saying I, I'm approving of this, but I will say that what I realized is the video approach is another step in the rock concertization of Broadway musicals. Uh-huh. I mean, those who go to Madison Square Garden to see um, Springsteen know that there will be big video screens peppered around the arena so that those in the upper reaches of the building will be able to see what's happening on the faraway stage. Well, the Broadway theater is one of our biggest houses, so those in row R of the rear mezzanine will be able to experience the show better than they might have assumed when they bought their tickets. So uh, what I liked about the video, they weren't just head-on shots. Um, Some were, but some were actually um, a different angle from the wings. Uh, They had people doing video, apparently, and so you weren't seeing exactly on the screen sometimes what you were actually seeing on stage. The funny thing, too, is <laughs> I know I often reference William Goldman's The Season, but that season there was a show called The Happy Time at the same theater, the Broadway theater. And they used this device of uh, having projections and everybody complained about uh, not being able to see the actors even then. So uh, so this is not a new um, uh, complaint. So, But um, the fact that they have different angles um, makes – I thought the mix and match approach was very rewarding and very exciting. Uh, what I really liked, um, if there were a Tony for best set decoration of a video, and there may very well be someday, don't bet against it, this production would get it because Doc's store is an unruly riot of crammed together items. The dress shop shows a number of women at sewing machines virtually on top of each other, reiterating that it's a sweatshop. And Maria bed- Maria's bedroom has peeling paint and a low-rent tenement feel. So 
So I think that's um, really something to see those um, replicated in that way. Um, there are downsides to the video. Um, at the beginning, uh, when they show the close-up to the guys' faces, um, you see the pearl-shaped head microphones in the middle of their foreheads. Um, ironically enough, I attended on Ash Wednesday, and the black marks near the hairlines looked as if the gangs had been to church and had gotten dusted, which I don't think the Justin Shots would do, but that's another story. Um, and later there was a close-up of Maria trying on her new dress, and you can see the microphone pack, the square microphone pack resting in the middle of her um, uh, gluteus maximus, shall we say, to be high-toned about this. Um, and you might not even notice it because you might be questioning the dress that uh, Anne Dweez, um decided to give her because um, it's it's a very dull dress, not nearly as lovely as the one that mm. Natalie Wood uh, sports in the um, Oscar-winning film, you know. So, in fact, you have to start wondering, is Maria's enthusiasm of this dress that looks like it's right off the rack um does that mean she has no taste um should we infer that anita doesn't have any ability to uh design anything impressive by them um <clears throat> but um so i i thought it was time to see something different with west side story i had i i i don't want to see west side story uh business as usual anymore so um um, it, it was more exciting than I expected it to be. Um, it's a bare stage. There's so little scenery. All of it could fit into a U-Haul. And yes, it is far upstage. It looks very Lilliputian uh, compared to the video and all that. But um, I, I responded to uh, the video very, very much. And um, so I'm all set there. Well, um, Peter, where, uh, where in the house did you sit? Oh, gee, I would say, um, oh, it was row M. Yeah, in the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. Left, uh, right, center? Center. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I agree with Michael that, whoa, that video with Tony and um, Riff, uh, uh, I don't even think it's an inch apart. A lot of people have alleged <laughs> that Tony and Riff are lovers. And um, it would seem that uh, Ivo Van Hove um, does agree uh, because they really, you really do expect that at any moment, Either one of them is waiting for the other one to kiss. Um, so, but uh, there's another touch that I really like with Riff, and that is, um, remember, he's trying to get Tony back in the gang. Um, he's really intent on doing that. And at the when Tony and Maria meet at the dance, eventually all the other people, all the jets and all the sharks move away, and um, you're left with Tony and Maria on stage. But Riff is there too, uh, an extreme uh, stage right, looking at them. And you really know that he's saying it's over now. There's no way that Tony's going to rejoin the Jets. He has a new um, interest in life. And so we're all done. You know, so um, um, I did not like Isaac Powell at all at, um, as Tony because um, he seemed rather dorky to me. I think he would be a very good duty in Greece. Um, hmm. And um, I don't <laughs> think he really has to look for it. You know, a lot of people have complained about Richard Boehmer in the, in the movie saying, this guy ran a gang. Well, Richard Bayman looks like a serial killer compared to this guy. I mean, so um, uh, so I do think that was very strange casting. The only thing that really saves him is he has a glorious voice, um, really quite wonderful. And I thought um, that was uh, quite wonderful indeed. Um, but, yeah, um, th it, there's, there's no question that um, this is a tougher, grittier West Side story. I do take issue with the fact that um, – they, as much as 
um, the director did adhere to so many of the movie conventions, that is um, not having the somewhere ballet, among other things, um, and the switch of um, the lyrics in America, which I the movie to me does America much better with um, the, the shark men against the shark women, as opposed to the stage show where it's just the shark women versus the shark women. Um, it makes more sense to me to have the, the, the men complain more because they've been more disappointed. They're the ones who are really being threatened much more than the women are. Uh, so, um, oh, and by the way, however, you know, when the Jets uh, rape an, uh, Anita at the end of the show, um, it's far more graphic than you have. This isn't a dance. I mean, this is really an assault, and there's even a tiny sliver of um, dorsal nudity. But um, anyway, um, so uh, <laughs> I, I do have a, a real problem with um, one little thing that happens in the background, and that is um, we do see in the dress shop scene in the video that there's a Puerto Rican man who seems to be an employee, and he's dressed in androgynous clothes. And during the dance at the gym, he's even seen dancing with another man, which seems to bother no one. And uh, yes, this West Side Story is set in the much more liberal here and now. Um, you even find out that Doc's um, store sells lottery tickets. So, you know, it's not 1957 anymore. But wouldn't at least one gang member feel compelled to express his homophobia? At the very least, the Sharks would want to distance themselves from this young man. Um, at the very most, they'd give him a pummeling every chance he got. I mean, they got. So, because even Jacob Guzman's Chino is rougher than uh, the shy guy in the film. You know, um, he seems um, very much capable of, uh, you, you should pardon the expression, straightening out the guys. So, um, uh, during that dance at the gym, there's some very nice lighting. Green lights illuminate one gang and purple ones illuminate the others to set them apart. Uh, what are, are the green on the jets or the sharks? I have no idea. One of the big problems of the show is because um, both groups are homogenous. It's very hard, if not impossible, uh, to separate who's a jet and who's a shark. Um, and I know that that's part of the director's intention to indicate that, but um, it, it's still hard to know what's going on. Um, and we, you have to understand that um, the um, casting of Riff um, with Darren E. Jones must be non-traditional casting because um, I'm not sure the Jets, uh, who are so natively prejudiced, would choose a black man as their leader. So, so it is non-traditional casting. And he probably got the job for the best possible reason. He's terrific. And, of course, he was a last-minute replacement when uh, the first choice became uh, injured. So... Um, so um, I, I like that uh, the choreographer um, and Teresa de Kiersmaker, um didn't have Tony and Maria see each other and experience love at first sight. She, she lets Maria dance a while. And Maria is a terrible dancer. I don't mean the actress. I mean, Maria. And the, the point is that, you know, she talks about this is my first dance uh, that comes up, you know, and so and she's really trying to be part of the group, you know, and dancing. And she's terrible. And that's kind of funny. Um, I thought that was really good. Um, I like that quite a bit. Um, but all in all, you know, I, I, I have to say that um, there are some moves that um, do strike me as odd with the choreography. And um, when Tony and Maria meet. Um, the choreographer has the gang stand way behind them and just stare at them. Um, okay, um, that might be some sort of symbolism, but 
Uh, in a production that's been establishing gritty reality, we can't accept that this silent staring would happen. And, and yet I do understand the symbolism a little later. Um, as the lovers sing tonight, uh, the jets and sharks come on stage and surround them. Now, they're not really there. The point is that Marie and Tony have these people in the back of their minds and uh, forgetting about them uh, won't be easy. Um, I wish that um, he had uh, adhered to the movie uh, in terms of switching Cool and Giuseppe Krepke. This is a very controversial thing. So many people say, no, 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 you need that comic relief late in the show. But in a gritty show like this, there are problems. Um, the Giuseppe Krepke number um, is much too lighthearted for that moment in the show in this very, very realistic production, because this is not the time after these guys have witnessed two murders to be using expressions like golly Moses, Glorioski, leaping lizards is for Annie. It's not for these people at this moment in time. When it's done earlier, when the Jets think they're on the top of the world and nothing bad can happen to them and they're the greatest and all that kind of business, yeah, that's a good place for it. I really do believe. I, I had heard the reason for having cool early in the stage show originally was something to do with costumes or getting people ready for something else or Sets. something. Yeah, it was sets. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, given that there's no set uh, per se, except those tiny little things in the back, as Michael alluded to, um, you know, put Krupke early. And, you know, I fully expected to hear not Krupp you at the end since this was so gritty. And I wonder if Sondheim was approached or if he refused. But f even in the 1980 revival. And certainly the 2009, I think all those buggins that you hear in the Jets song uh, should be changed to <laughs> a, a much more severe word. And I'm very surprised that uh, Sondheim hasn't acknowledged that since um, I've been told um, that he originally wanted to write um, Fuck You at the end of uh, Krupke. And it was Bernstein who said, um, let's do Krupke, OK? You know, do you mind? You know, um, so so really now's the time. These guys, you know, wouldn't say Krupke. They just wouldn't. And so um, if you're going to really update everything else, you have to update the language, too. And um, so those are the points that um, strike me. But uh, in the end, it's still West Side Story with Leonard Bernstein's dazzling music that somehow always managed through the decades to never seem dated. Mm. You know, I mean, it's so amazing. Mm. Um, but, you know, I still say that those who saw the two previous major revivals on Broadway probably stopped thinking about what they'd seen soon after they arrived home. And I don't think this will be the case with this one. Okay. So that is uh, West Side Story at the Broadway Theater. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I'll see it next in the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll revisit it and see if uh, anybody's opinions have changed with time. Uh, so next up, Peter, Michael, and I got down to the Ab uh, Abrams. A yeah, that's bronze. right. Yeah, yeah, you know, I heard somebody the other night pronounce it a bronze. Oh, and really? Thought, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, maybe yeah. That's I, what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the Abrams a bronze art center. It's uh, in fact, uh, we had a, a long discussion on Broadway Radio about Eva Van Hova or Eva Van Hove. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've decided to use both. Uh, well, we saw the Transport Group's production of the Unsinkable Molly Brown. 
Uh, so, Peter, why don't you get us started on Molly and tell us a little bit about the genesis of Molly? Well, um, one thing I should point out is that um, one of the best songs in Molly Brown, Belly Up to the Bar Boys, mm-hmm. um, it has a story very similar to Hello, Dolly. Um, you may have heard the, uh, when Dolly was in trouble in Detroit, um, Strauss and Adams came out and wrote a song called Before the Parade Passes By. And Jerry Herman said, oh, what a great title. And he wrote his own Before the Parade Passes By. Uh-huh. So um, there's a similar story here. And that is that Fred Ebb, uh, who I've already mentioned today, Fred Ebb actually, uh, when auditioning for the show, uh, wrote a lyric called Belly Up to the Bar Boys. And um, Meredith Wilson, when he got the job, said, oh, what a great title. I'm going to take it. And in fact, Fred Ebb did get a, a tiny piece of the action as a result of that. <laughs> so um, that's that's kind of interesting to me because who expects that to happen? Um, Molly Brown was the very first show I ever saw from a first row orchestra seat. So I have great fondness for it. I saw The Road <laughs> Company with Tammy Grimes, who had won a Tony the best featured actress category because she was built below the title. As her agent said to her when she didn't want to do the show, Tammy was very famous for turning down projects. She turned down the TV series Bewitched. Wouldn't she have been wonderful in it? Anyway, um, she said, I don't want to do it. And the agent said, are you crazy? This girl is off stage for seven pages. You know, you'll, it'll make you a star. And indeed it did. So, um, so, but the original story was simply that um, Molly wanted to uh, be better than she was, and she wanted to be um, essentially a social climber. And um, it was very clever to make her fall in love with Jolly Brown, bef- Johnny Brown, before he struck it rich. Um, she doesn't want to, but she does. And then he goes out and he makes a fortune. And as a result, because they have the money now, they can move from this dull uh, town of Leadville to Denver, where she's not accepted by people Mm. because she, as uh, a a priest, a Monsignor says to her, you just remind them of where they came from Mm. before and uh, they can't take it. So she goes to Europe and she gets culture. And of course, in Europe, they love this, um, you know, maverick type of personality and, and and she wins them over but she misses johnny and so she decides to uh come back to america and uh, takes the titanic uh well you know and that's a problem too so um <laughs> but she does yeah. she, she but she is unsinkable as the title tells you i mean um, spoiler alert <laughs> it's it's like inviting jessica fletcher to dinner <laughs> so as a result um she comes back and she and Johnny are reunited. All right. It's it, Dick Scanlon is, does a very good job of making it much more interesting, much more interesting, because what happens here is, yes, they get money. They get a lot of money. And what Molly wants to do is um, spread it around the way from uh, <laughs> wanted and Dolly. Uh, she wants to spread. She wants to help people. But Johnny has become a type of Babbitt who really, you know, is, is not very good about sharing the money with his employees. Um, when they want to start a union, uh, he's, he's not at all happy while he has a very different take on it. So this is much more complicated. We find out much more about the real Molly Brown in this iteration than we did in the original. Um, <laughs> Dick Scallon has gone on record saying, I'm telling you, if, if, there was social media in, in, in her day, she would be all over it and you would, you'd be hearing from her every other second. Um, but you really do see her as a mover and shaker. I mean, there she is negotiating with the governor. There she is doing all sorts of things to make life better for other people. And so she really is a, a stronger heroine because she was much more interested in herself. There is a lyric in the opening song, a marvelous opening song. I think one of the best in Broadway musicals called 
I ain't down yet. I mean much more to me uh, than to anybody else. Well, in this version, yes, she certainly means much more to her than anybody else, don't we all? But the thing is, she is concerned about other people too. And that's a real strength of this show. So, um, so it's really quite, quite um, a revisal. I think I heard that, um, that there was something like 10 lines left from the original. And uh, frankly, you know, again, I don't think it was just my extra seat. I thought the, the uh, original iteration was terrific. And I've always been surprised that um, it sort of fell by the wayside. But nevertheless, you have to give Scanlon credit for doing a lot of research and finding out things. And also, musicals about big characters and big events. And who does he bring in? Horace Tabor and his wife, um, Baby Doe. There was hmm. even an opera um, about uh, them, and um, that's really smart too, because you have uh, Johnny Brown going to to battle with uh, Horace Tabor, and uh, so there are many more interesting facets here. And Dick Scanlon learned all about this when he went to uh, the Molly Brown House in Denver. Um, I have to say, only I only passed it by on a tour, and I never went inside, but he went inside, and that makes all the difference. So, uh, terrific cast. Terrific cast. I have to say that um, um, Beth Malone really does the job. She's really quite wonderful. And um, y- you have to be to do this part. And she does not disappoint for a tenth of a second. She's really up there doing what, um, everything that one can expect. But also playing J.J. Brown is David Aaron Domain. And my, he's marvelous, too. Um, if you know the Molly Brown score, you're not going to hear all of it. Um, you are going to hear the movie, um, the movie song, He's My Friend, which is a great song. You know, it's terrific in the movie. Um, I hate the movie, by the way. I think Debbie Reynolds is excruciating, and that's a very controversial performance. Because a lot of people agree with me, and a lot of people don't. She got an Oscar nomination, and how many times I've heard people say, she should have won instead of Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins. Well, you know, we all have our values. But anyway, um, I think she's uh, really quite fine, quite fine indeed. And... Um, uh, a shout out to Paula Leggett Chase, who I found on on Facebook, tore her meniscus, mm-hmm. and there she is up there. And at one point, I went, "Oh," because you know, she made this terrifically difficult move. And I'm telling you, you know, I, I Ken Bloom, who was sitting, uh, who I took, who was sitting next to me, said, "What happened?" You know, and, and you know, he really thought that I had some sort of attack because I was really worried for her. You would never know that she had a problem in the world, and here she is doing a really terrific job. Very fine cast, wonderful choreography by Kathleen Marshall. Um, I'll tell you, this, the set um, has some, a, a surprise in it that really got an ooh from the audience. And um, frankly, I would do the reverse of what happens in the set, but I'll I'll leave that um, enigmatic. Um, but um, uh, a fine production, and I wish it well. All right. Michael, what did you think? Well, I got, uh, after seeing the show, I got an email from the transport group saying, thank you so much for joining us at mm-hmm. the Unsinkable Molly Brown. We hope you enjoyed Transport Group's revitalized version of the musical Tale of Margaret Molly Brown. Um, so that word is not one that I'm sure I've heard um, used before for one of these radical revisions. I would say it's certainly revitalized in terms of so much action being added and so many new characters. For me, it just became very wearying and tiresome, and the net result is actually enervating and and kind of boring. Um, it's interesting. The originals, I, I, I have never seen a single production of this show before before now, and I, and I guess I still haven't because it's not the original show. Uh, we were talking last week about how I had seen four Mac and Mabel's 
uh, before the the recent one at Encores, and Peter said he had seen seven, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, according to my experience, this is the incredibly obscure show. I know that uh, Debbie Reynolds toured in it um, for uh, for I, I think maybe more than once in later years. Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh, and sometimes with Harv Presnell from the movie, mm-hmm, who played Johnny right. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't see any of those. So I literally have not seen a production before this one. Um, Peter, you, you mentioned before, uh, it's, they, ha- they are saying that only three lines oh, yeah? three? Of, of the original mm-hmm. libretto by Richard Morris remain. And I think I caught all three of them because I, th- I think all uh-huh. three of them were retained for the movie. Um, uh, uh, Raven Snook uh, reviewed this show for <laughs> Time Out, and she had a great turn of phrase. I had quoted uh, Melissa Rose Bernardo a week or two ago, but uh, Raven talked about all the changes for this production, and she said, the result is a thoroughly modern Molly. Uh-huh. Which is really, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. clever on two levels, because just the phrase itself, but also the fact, as we know, that Dick Scanlon, who rewrote mm. this show also was one of the revisers of thoroughly modern Millie written so by I, Richard Morris written by. Yes. And that was, uh, I remember, um, when thoroughly modern Millie was, was, uh, being about to be done the first time Dick, uh, put me in touch with Richard Morris, who was still alive. then, And so I got to interview him, um, about Millie, not, not about, Molly Brown because that wasn't the, the subject mm-hmm. at the time, and I was always grateful uh, that I got to talk with him uh, because I wouldn't have had the opportunity otherwise. So, um, thanks again to Dick for that. Um, I I just thought uh, well anyway as, as I started to say before the the uh, the movie and again I can't judge the show the movie is interesting in that it has uh, very very few. Um, or basically no major characters other than the, the leads. Uh, and even the supporting characters, um, m- most of them don't have much to do. Uh, and I think maybe that's a flaw of the movie uh, in that it's a little bit too much centered on just those two, you know, for, for two hours or however long the movie is. But I think they, I, I think they really went, in the opposite direction here to the, to the opposite extreme. Uh, it's this, this libretto has one woke social justice issue after another. It's uh, unwed motherhood, racism, white privilege, immigrants rights, women's rights, labor unions, student debt, is brought up mm-hmm. uh, outreach to the homeless, uh, and then uh, you know the very specific issue of advocacy for the Titanic survivors, which apparently is that very historically accurate. That is something that Molly did after they, uh, you know, after they the those who were rescued got back to New York. Um, uh, she she advocated for those who, uh, because as we see here, it's depicted that. Um, for example, this one girl, one uh, Irish girl, uh, who ha- hadn't have much money to begin with, and whatever she had was lost uh, when the ship went down, and they're going to deport her. Uh, they're going to send her back, and Molly fights to keep her here. I, I, I don't know for certain that this is 100% accurate, but I'm getting the idea that it, it is. So I thought that was very interesting, but it's just that there are so many, so many of these. It's, it's almost like a... Um, 
a political pamphlet uh, watching this show. Uh, and I, I'm surprised they didn't realize that they were overstuffing it in that way. I, I certainly think they did. I, and I jokingly said to uh, someone afterwards, the only thing they didn't cover is gay rights. Um, although <laughs> um, there's a scene early on where Molly does seem very, very close uh, yeah. to this widow. <laughs> yes. This yeah. widow whose um, husband dies in a mining accident. So I thought we were even going to get that, but they didn't quite spell that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, lots of uh, changes in far, as far as songs cut. And songs added. Again, I don't know the show. I don't even really know the original cast album. It's just one of those shows I never really, really got into for what one reason or another. Um, they do use a, a little bit of the song He's My Friend, which Meredith Wilson wrote for the movie. Uh, and that I was glad to see that in there. But I cannot, you know, I mean, we could argue the cuts. Uh, I'll leave it to people who know the show better. But how they could cut... Johnny Brown or J.J. Brown's song, Colorado, My Home, is beyond me. Um, I think it, I've always thought of it as one of the essential songs from that show, even though it's not on the album. Um, it's not on the album because it wasn't in the show. Well, it's not, but it wasn't it's in, in the, the overture. It's in the overture, but it was cut. Is, is your understanding that it was cut? Absolutely. Yeah, they do use it in the movie. You're quite right there. But uh, it, it wasn't. Believe me, something of that scope would have been on the album if it was still in the album. Well, uh, you know, show. when uh, Harv Presnell did Annie Warbucks. Yeah. Is that the title of the show that he did? <laughs> Annie Warbucks. Uh, um, a friend uh, was working on the show and I said, can you please ask him? Actually, it was Gerard Alessandrini who said, can you please ask Harv why that song is not on the album, even though it's in the overture? And, and he, you know what he said? What? He said it wasn't finished. Ah. Um, so I'm not mm. sure exactly what that means, uh, ah. uh, but that's what he said. And I mm. guess that's why it is in the movie, because they had time mm -hmm. to finish it. Yeah, sure. uh, but regardless, I, I just think it's essential to his character, and I think they should have kept it, and I can't believe they didn't. And God knows this guy in this production would have sung it beautifully. He would have. But um, again, the issue isn't just I want to go back to um, where, where I can be me. Um, it, it really is a fact that uh, Europe doesn't bother him in this. Uh, it's, it's the fact that he really wants to hold on to his money. And God knows there are plenty of people who come from nothing who, when they get money, Hold on to it. S.S. Kresge, there used to be a, a, the forerunner of Kmart. Um, S.S. Kresge, a multi, multi, multi millionaire, had four pairs of shoes in his entire life. <laughs> used to stuff them with paper. I mean, and he was really famous for being so niggardly cheap um, that indeed um, you have to understand a lot of rich people are like that who came from nothing. They still believe it's going to be taken away from them. And so this is the character of Johnny Brown in this show. And I think it's a very strong idea, just as opposed to I don't want to hang out with these um, high tone people who think they're better than I am. Well, okay, I see what you're saying, but then I think that's a flaw in the rewrite of the character. I think uh, it's necessary for him to express how much he loves where he lives and that he's a man of the earth and a simple man and that uh, Molly wants something else. And that's what ultimately leads to their uh, separation. Uh, of course, that's I'm talking about the original now. Uh, they, they've, they've rewritten yeah. it here. And, and so I, I think that was a loss. Um, 
interestingly, another example of overcompensation. I, I've always thought in the movie that the Titanic scene is very brief and very abrupt. It was uh, in the original show, too. Oh, okay. It was yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was I was very disappointed by it. You know, there I was. I was 16 years old. Mm. But I mean, I'm telling you, I was so disappointed. I really expected something dazzling on stage, and mm. it did not happen at all. Well, that's interesting. I, I, uh, but I think that. Uh, so I, I appreciate that they expanded that whole sequence, and it actually, mm-hmm. they did. There's a, there's a framing device for this show uh, that begins with an inquest into, uh, you know, after the fact where Molly is being questioned uh, in court, I guess it's court, um, about her role uh, after the after the sinking, because there's a question of um, how she was Congress. Was, yeah. was it a court or Congress? Mm-hmm. Congress. Uh, okay, Congress. All right. Well, even more so. Um, and she, uh, because there's some question about how she behaved in the lifeboat and blah, blah, blah. So I, I appreciated that they added to it, but I thought uh, there again, I think they went a little too far. Uh, when you, uh, when you show up at this show uh, with your, your program, your playbill or whatever, you get a little sh- uh, slip of paper um, telling you a name you're supposed to listen to uh, when they are announcing the, uh, the survivor's, of the Titanic and you're supposed to shout out that you're there for them. Uh, I, I thought that was a little cheesy to be honest and a little bit too much. Um, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up soon. I promise. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't like the direction of Kathleen Marshall at all. I, I would say based on this and her past work that whatever talent she does have, that she is not a strong director of actors uh, and Ironically, in this production, I thought even the choreography was problematic because I noticed a lot of moments where uh, people were facing upstage, uh, you know, and that is something that can happen occasionally. But I noticed so much of it. So I thought that was very odd. Um, And I think that she did no favors. uh, Kathleen Marshall did not to either Beth Malone or to David Aaron Domain. I think that both of their characters could have and should have had a lot more levels. Uh, Beth Malone is phenomenal in terms of energy and uh, charm and her voice and, and, and pluck and all of that. But I, but she's also kind of relentless. And I thought that that could have been helped by a better director. Whereas conversely, uh, this JJ Brown here is, uh, he, this David Aaron Domain has a gorgeous voice, but the character he plays him so stoic and stiff, and uh, I mean to a almost ridiculous degree. I thought I don't know if that's an attempt to um, to re envision the role for a for an African American actor. Although there again, that brings you to the whole thing, uh, which I, th- this is the. Most one of the most complicated examples of, I guess, colorblind casting that I've ever seen because I, I think he's, I don't think we're supposed to think that the character who was a historical figure is supposed to be African American, but uh, then other characters in the show, like played by Paolo Montalban and others, are apparently supposed to be the races that they are because there are references to it. And then there's this incredibly strange scene where uh, there's a scene added where there's a, um, after 
uh, Johnny and Molly strike it rich. They have a black maid working for them. And at one point, they're si- uh, the, Johnny and Molly are sitting there at the table and she's waiting on them. And she ha- actually has a line of s- something to the effect of uh, blah, 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 working for white people. And she turns and looks at Beth Malone and delivers a line to her because she can't really look at Johnny and deliver it because he's not white. At least the char- the actor isn't. Uh, I thought that was a very, very odd moment. And I don't understand uh, exactly if it's supposed to be colorblind or not. Um, but either way, I didn't like the direction of those two. And I thought that the changes were went overboard and I guess I'll probably now will never have a chance to see the original, which I would have liked to, if only out of curiosity. All right. So, um, I liked it much more than Michael did. Uh, and, uh, what I mean, uh, certainly this uh, was Peter and Michael. Do you think, uh, was this really written as a star vehicle uh, at first, or I mean, because it certainly seems like a star vehicle. You mean for, for Tammy Beth. Grimes? Yeah. Oh, I don't think so. No, no. Um, but um, there's no question that um, it became hard. Yeah, mm, yeah. Um, when when Beth Malone, I, I think it was the end of Act One. Did you see her do a cartwheel? Yeah. At yes. the end. <laughs> yeah. Even that. I I was like I was like this is just uh, at a tour de force of Beth sure. Malone, and I thought uh, when when talking to other folks that um, I, I really enjoyed Kathleen Marshall's choreography and direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really did, and I thought that the the biggest downside of this particular production is its location down mm, so yeah. far in the East Village, uh, so far away from everything. I thought Stage 42 might have been a really good home for, well, for this. Well, per- it's also a small stage. And, yeah. um, you know, the, it did seem like the choreography was busting at the seams. Um, so uh, I, 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 I wish they had a little more space, and I think it would have made a difference. But uh, nevertheless, I do think the moves that Kathleen Marshall made for the choreography and the ideas behind the choreography were very solid ones. I think that company, my impression is that that company has been struggling for a while and I assume they have a very good deal at the, the at theater. Um, And as same uh, way that they do a lot of shows um, still at the Judson uh, gym at Judson. Yes. But um, my guess is, and I have no uh, reason to say this beyond a guess is that um, they're not struggling any more or less than anybody else is. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, well. The transport group, you're saying. Yeah. Um, And, and, I mean, if you are struggling, do you, are you even able to get a return phone call from Kathleen Marshall and and Beth Malone and Mm -hmm. all all the rest of these people? This is not. This is not indicative of uh, a company that is putting together a, a revival of some s- something and get very talented people who don't already have Tony Awards. Well, what's interesting there is this show, um, uh, this revised version was previously done in both, uh, is this correct, Seattle and Denver? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and I yeah. think I would say what sounds to me like... Um, pretty major venues mm-hmm. and i would assume that the original thought was broadway rather than the uh, bronze arts center yeah uh mm-hmm. you know but 
this is what they got. And it's uh, certainly safer, as we know, <laughs> uh, to try to do something on that level um, if you're not 100% sure uh, than to throw, you know, throw everything into the pot and just go to Broadway. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I really felt that that my evening was was bettered by seeing this. Uh, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed everybody in the cast, and I I thought I thought it was thoroughly entertaining. And it was a, an ability for me to check off another thing that I had never seen mm. on stage before. Uh, and uh, I hope that other people get to see it. It's playing through March twenty second, so it's only got uh, three weeks left right now, unless it extends or or moves to some other space or things like that. So check it out. So, Peter, you got down to Philadelphia to see the t- the tour of Hello, Dolly. Uh, so, tell us, uh, why did you go to see this? <laughs> you want the absolute truth? Yeah. Um, it was my girlfriend's birthday, and uh-huh. um, and she wanted to go to Atlantic City. And um, uh-huh. so, okay. we were, it was only an hour away. So, I thought, sure. oh, let me go see um, Dolly here. And uh, I have to say, there are only three stops left in this tour. Uh, it's going to Providence, it's going to Buffalo, and it's going to Rochester. And uh, if you're in any of those cities or anywhere near those cities and you want to see Hello, Dolly, uh, indeed, this is the time to do it because it really is the production that we had on Broadway. I think down to every backdrop and um, every set piece and all that. Uh, they have not scrimped on this. It has not been reduced for the road, which is something that usually does happen. So uh, congratulations to everybody concerned for giving the road uh, its, uh, its due. So uh, so now we have Carolee Carmelo in the part, and she's really magnificent. It's really something. Um, the confidence she has that she's going to do a bang-up job is just apparent from the very beginning. She has grabbed this role, and she has made it her own. Um, she has really examined every possible lyric and line, and I, you know, as a veteran of somebody who's seen so many dollies, um, Carol Channing, Ginger Rogers, Pearl Bailey, Betsy Hockhauser, um, that's a community <laughs> theater production. Anyway, um, you know, Bette Midler, Donna Murphy, Bernadette Peters. I mean, I've seen so many dollies over the years, needless to say. And um, Carolee Carmelo has found different shadings. Um, she really has examined every syllable, not just every word, and she really has made it her own. So she's really terrific in it. Um, I, I was so impressed. That said, um, we also have John Bolton in the cast, who's really quite wonderful, too. Um, Dolly has a lyric about um, a, a, a woman uh, that she matched up who has a countenance a little bit like Scrooge. Well, John Bolton has a countenance a great deal like Scrooge, and he's really um, quite wonderful in um, being this... Um, nasty and um, cynical um, Harris Vandegel. There's even a point where he ties apron strings around him before going to work. And even the way he ties the apron strings shows you that um, she's all business. So, and it's wonderful how he, he's this, he's supposed to be this old man. Um, and yet when he goes to see Irene Malloy, he really youthens uh, tremendously. So, um, 
So really, this is quite a wonderful production. Um, but, you know, something occurred to me that had never occurred to me before. And that is, uh, for all the dollies I've seen, this is the 17th um, dolly I've seen. And ironically enough, um, you know, you always hear about musical theater songs that are supposed to advance the action. And the funny thing is, the motherhood song, where uh, Cornelius is in the uh, closet and um, Barnaby is under the table, uh, and Vandergelder suspects that something's going on, and, and uh, Dolly has to um, just distract him and sings the song about motherhood, which has nothing to do with anything, but she's just trying to get him off the scent of finding out that there are two guys in the place. Um, ironically enough, you know, they come out um, of the table, they come out of the closet, and she distracts him again so he doesn't notice that they're there. And what happens at the end of the number is you're right back where you started from. <laughs> He's back in the closet, and, um, and Barnaby's under the table. So um, and, so that's kind of funny. It never occurred to me before. Um, the supporting cast is really quite wonderful, too. And um, I was really um, quite quite impressed by that. And, um, yeah, yeah, and of course, we all judge um, the uh, Dolly um, production by the Dolly number. And um, it's really in great shape. Uh, the passerelle is still there, so the guys jump over it and... Um, and uh, serenade Dolly, and uh, you know, friends. Uh, that TV series talks about where everybody knows your name. <laughs> well, everybody knows Dolly's name, but what's really wonderful is she knows their name too. And um, it's very nice to know that after all this time, these guys, uh, these waiters, can really hold a job because they're still there. <laughs> so, um, a wonderful, wonderful touring production. So, I'm sorry that it only has three stops left, but I was delighted beyond belief uh, to see it in such wonderful shape and this was at the academy of music in philadelphia which has not one not two but three balconies and business was good i mean i was amazed this was a sunday night at 6 30 when are there performances like that and let me point out this was the second performance they did that day because they did one at one o'clock as well and um i would say the orchestra was virtually full uh the first balcony oh, i'd say about 75 percent full the second balcony, I would say about 50% full. And the third balcony, about 30% full. And that's a lot of people in this place, believe me. So there's still a lot of people who want to see Hello, Dolly. And I'll bet that the vast majority uh, went home tremendously happy. That's great. All right. So uh, as Peter mentioned, it's coming up at Providence, at the Providence Performing Arts Center, March 3rd to the 8th, uh, March 10th to the 15th at uh, Shea's Performing Arts Center in Buffalo, and March 17th to the 22nd at Rochester's RBTL Auditorium Theater. And that's the end of the Dolly Tour. Mm. So uh, if you want to get to see it, you're going to have to hit one of those dates. Michael, you got over to the Town Hall to see a uh, the Volume 1 of Broadway by the Year, Broadway musicals <laughs> of 2000 to 2004. Od- oddly, that Volume 1 doesn't start maybe much earlier, but okay. So tell us about this. Oh, they mean uh, that that's volume one of, of well, they used to. <laughs> yeah. I think Broadway used by to the use, year used to be, used to a, be a single year. year. Yeah. They were, mm-hmm. yeah. But now uh, they're giving themselves more latitude. And this was a range of years. So shows that opened between 2000 and 2004, including revivals. So they gave themselves a lot of latitude. Uh, and this is volume one of that created, written and directed by Scott Siegel. This was Monday, February 24th at Town Hall, which is one of my favorite places. Uh, choreography, Danny Gardner, music director, Ross Patterson. I would say this is one of the best ever. 
of these shows that Scott has done. Uh, when they started, um, there was an understandable uh, emphasis on solos and duets because obviously the, these kinds of shows have a limited amount of rehearsal. But what happened was, I, as I as I recall, um, some years ago, Noah Racy uh, became involved with uh, with Scott on, in doing these shows, and he is. Um, a wonderful choreographer as well as dancer and singer and actor. And he uh, would start to put little dance troops together to be in the shows and they would rehearse on their own uh, time, you know, in, in addition to the, the, the normal amount of rehearsal that, that the shows actually get. And I assume um, that the, the situation is the same here with Danny Gardner. Uh, uh, there were quite a lot of dancers in this show. Um, it's it's a, a sizable dance troupe, and I'm not uh, completely sure if they're all from a class or uh, just a, a company. Or, uh, but anyway, he really put together some amazing numbers, and it 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 does help to have. Um, the big, some big production numbers and all that movement, uh, spice, you know, just kind of thrown in among the, the solos and duets. So some of the highlights of this show were the opening number was 42nd Street uh, with Danny Gardner and the Broadway by the Year dance troupe. And they did a wonderful, clever, witty little thing for that number. As I'm sure many of our listeners know, uh, 42nd Street, the musical, famously opens with um, the curtain rising only uh, a little bit to reveal the only the legs of the dancers all in a line and tapping their hearts out. Uh, and then, and it stays at that level for a while before it, it, it rises further to reveal their whole bodies. Well, they couldn't do that here because there is no proscenium curtain, no grand drape at town hall. And so um, what they did was <laughs> the dancers all brought out little swatches of red fabric and held them in front of them. Like, <laughs> you know, so like just in front of their torsos so that we could only see, you know, see their legs basically to put focus on their legs uh, when they started tapping. And I thought that was just so clever. But also the the choreography and the execution of the choreography was just phenomenal, pinpoint accurate. And it really started the show with a bang. Um, the next number was for something completely different, a complete change of mood with Max von Essen coming out to sing a gorgeous version of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma, uh, followed by Jenny Lee Stern doing a very affecting and sweet and beautiful rendition of Somewhere That's Green from Little Shop. Um, other highlights, uh, Max, Max von Essen got to re recreate uh, his, his big song from the epic flop, Dance of the Vampires. Uh, that song is called For Sarah, and I don't think we're all going to get much opportunity, much further opportunity to hear that. So that was a very special moment. Um, uh, this woman, Leon Marie Dobbs, sang the next best, the next best thing to love from a class act. Um, and no one mentioned that that show is about to be uh, revived in a vest pocket production by the J2 Spotlight Company. Uh, so, uh, but 
that's just to give uh, a heads up to our listeners on that. Uh, if you want to see that whole show, that's coming up very soon. Um, another other highlights, Brian Charles Rooney did I Am What I Am from La Cajo Foal. Um, this fellow, Ben Jones, uh, very very versatile fellow who did, among other things, um, The God, Why Don't You Love Me Blues from Follies. Uh, but then he did Gethsemane from, <laughs> from Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, talk about something completely different. Uh, and he was great in both of them. Uh, Max uh, also did um, What Do I Need with Love from Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, and uh, Tova Feltshow. And sort of the 11 o'clock spot did some people from Gypsy. Uh, I, uh, she has done the whole role of Rose. I, I did not get to see that. So it was really nice to, to, uh, for me to get to see her do that big number. Um, and then the finale was a big dance number. I want to be a producer from the producers with Danny mm-hmm. Gardner and the dance troupe. Um, again, Ross Patterson, a piano, Dan Faltzone on bass, and Eric Calverson on drums. Um, and created, written, directed, and hosted by Scott Siegel. And it was a really wonderful night. All right. So those uh, one-night-only things are um, sad when we miss them, but there are, I think, three or four more in the schedule uh, over at Town Hall, and I've linked to it in the show notes. So if this sounded like a lot of fun to you, please get over to the Town Hall website and uh, check out the next ones that are coming up. To wrap up our reviews this morning, Peter, you got over to Theater Row to see No Strings by our friends Robert Schneider uh, and J2 Spotlight Musical Theater Co- uh, excuse me, company. J2 Spotlight Musical Theater Company. <laughs> so, Peter, what'd you think? Well, uh, this 1962 musical actually wound up getting the best score, um, Tony over Frank Lester's How to Succeed and um, Jerry Herman's Milk and Honey and Richard Adler's Quamina, and um, which are all good, good scores. And um, some people say, well, it was a Lifetime Achievement Award, you know, but don't forget, you know, Rogers had already won Tony's for South Pacific, The King and I, and Sound of Music, so I'm not sure it was that. Ironically enough, um, in his writing his own lyrics, what you really realize when you watch this show is that... Um, he repeats lyrics endlessly. Uh, many times an A section will be repeated or a B section will be repeated verbatim. And I wish he really had been a little more ambitious in writing um, more lyrics um, rather than have people repeat themselves. But, you know, the funny thing is, you know, this happens in top pop songs all the time. And maybe that's why No Strings is such a wonderful album uh, because of that reason, because it sounds like a pop album. And also it has those wonderful uh, Ralph Burns orchestrations. You don't get them here, of course. It's a small group. But again, if you're looking for strings, no, there aren't any, just as for all intents and purposes, there weren't any in the Broadway production. Um, if you listen to um, You Don't Tell Me on the album, you will hear a bass um, at the end of the um, number. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, No Strings doesn't have a good book. There's no question about that. It deals with um, a guy who's been a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author and he's rested on his laurel and I was just resting and uh, he's in um, Europe and he goes from place to place and people are so thrilled to meet this Pulitzer Prize winning offer that they host him and so he's gotten very very lazy and he does start books but uh, in fact somebody even says you know what does he do for a living he starts novels and uh, that's indeed true well he meets this fashion model 
and um, he's taken with her, and he's very aggressive in the way that he courts her. Uh, anybody who's a, a bit milk toasty where it comes to coming on to women should really see this guy in action because <laughs> he knows what to say and when. So he's very well defined there, and that part of the book is very strong. Um, so what was really famous about No Strings was the fact that uh, it was originally played by Ann Diane Carroll, a black woman, and uh, Richard Kiley, a white man. Now, this was hot stuff back in 1962. And speaking of Quamina, we had already had earlier in the season a show where a white woman was with a black man, and that show lasted 32 performances. Um, no Strings ran 580. And um, as a lot of people say, um, somehow the public can take uh, um, a black woman with a white man more than they could take a white woman with a black man at that time. So that was a theory um, had th that was had then. Um, what was really something special about the show was the fact that it was not alluded to until the final scene of the show. Mm. It's not brought up um, in any way, shape, or form. But as the show continues, there is one illusion where um, Barbara, the name of the fashion model, in a song called Maine, mentions that she grew up up north of Central Park. And, of course, that's Harlem. But anyway, they talk about um, having a relationship and coming back to America. And that's when we get the stuff about the, um, her being black. Because like Josephine Baker, when she went to um, Paris, um, people didn't care that she was black. They just cared that she was talented, and that was enough for them. Well, Barbara's doing a really good job as a fashion model in Paris. And should she move to Maine when none of this is going to happen? I mean, she tries to convince herself, so, well, I can read, I can learn to sew. You know, that lasts as long as those lines last. And then she realizes, no, I'm, I'm not going to Maine and be um, in a, a double uh, um, race relationship and have uh, people look at us every second of the day and judge us and hate me and all that kind of stuff. I'm staying in Paris. So, um, so they do decide to um, separate that there will be no strings attached. Um, I do think that song should come at that point in the show, but it doesn't. I also think that the main song should come earlier in the show. So, because uh, we can see what um, there's really no development of these two people as people. Uh, there's no reason to have them bond. So I do think Maine should come earlier. Maine, by the way, was a song that was hastily written in Detroit when the show was trying out there. A rare time, by the way, when um, Richard Rogers could not get a theater in Boston. As he used to famously say, I wouldn't uh, sh open a can of sardines without going to Boston. Well, this time <laughs> he had to uh, because the theaters were booked. Boy, those were the days. Anyway, um, a wonderful score in terms of the music. Again, as I say, the lyrics repeat themselves. A very, very um, wonderful pair of um, actors do this. You know, uh, Michael was talking about um, Unsinkable Molly Brown having virtually no uh, supporting characters. That's um, pretty much true here. Mm. But Cameron Bond is wonderful. He really has this role in his hands, mouth, throat, everywhere. It, it pervades his being. And Kiana Knight um, really has the elegance that one needs to be an, ex uh, an effective uh, Barbara Woodruff. So, um, so that's very, very strong as well. Um, there is um, a, another actor who, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but um, he plays an older man who is uh, very much uh, taken with uh, Barbara. And he's got the money and the means um, to uh, certainly uh, keep her. And uh, whether or not she's going to be kept or she's going to fall in love with this um, man who's at the moment just drifting, it, it doesn't that sound a little 
familiar? Yeah, I'm afraid so. But anyway, um, <laughs> despite Samuel Taylor's book, um, this is a very fine production of um, a show that, um, <sighs> that for those of us who want to see everything, this fills in that blank. And so, um, again, I will point out that I am on the advisory board of this company um, and um, full disclosure there. So I do want it to succeed. But um, after doing Seesaw, and um, you can tell that these people know what they're doing, and that's really very nice. Okay, so uh, that is no strings. Um, their website and their press release have two different closing dates. One says it's closing on Mar Sunday, March 8th, and the other one says it's closing Sunday, uh, Monday, March 9th. So I'm unsure of which one is accurate, but... Uh, Right around that time, I think probably the Sunday is the closing date. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it is the Monday because these people are selling tickets. I mean, mm. uh, you know, full houses, and I know people who couldn't even get into Seesaw. So, um, and it was it was packed the night I was there as well for no strings. So, I think the uh, I, I haven't heard. I'm not promising mm -hmm. anything, but it wouldn't surprise me if they added a performance just because of the fact that they're doing such wonderful business. And as I mentioned, they have a class act coming up very soon. So. Keep it yeah, out. a musical yeah. I admire quite a bit, by the way, but that's another story. We'll talk about that when the time comes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Telecharge has only tickets on sale through the Sunday the 8th. Uh -huh. and Monday the 9th is not on sale at Telecharge. I'm, uh -huh. I'm unsure if maybe there's something else going on there. Uh -huh. So uh, that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to our trivia question, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to your final podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today are in the show notes at broadradio.com. So, Peter, do we have a question for this week's trivia? Yeah, what do these shows have in common? Coco, Jimmy, The Irene Revival, The Wiz, Annie, Grand Hotel, and American Idiot. All right. If you have uh, an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Bye.